You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. We're the show where we try to visit with guests who have interesting experiences and helps for business leaders and executives running teams. We try to take the heavy, complex, and uncertain things of the day and break them down into understandable bite-sized nuggets that can help you be a better leader. You know, it said people join companies but quit bosses. So the real question is, if, if you're in a position of authority or trying to run a business, do you want to be one of those guys? <laughs> and uh, I think most of us, when we're asked that question, we say, of course not. But how do you get there? What do you do differently? Today, my guest is Ms. Carol Stizza. Carol has a bit of an HR background, but she's got some interesting ideas and thoughts about helping leaders. So uh, welcome to the show, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to get to where you are today as an executive coach. Sure. So I have been honored to be a military spouse for 26 years, and I worked uh, in corporate positions while my husband worked in military positions, which gave me this really interesting viewpoint into corporate leader versus military leadership. And while they all have the same end goal agenda of rising, helping to raise leaders, to perpetuate leadership, they do it very differently. Um, And so it was really interesting. And and everything I did while we moved across the country now falls underneath the large umbrella of HR. And I'm a certified senior HR strategist. Um, When I was in HR consulting, I would talk with leaders who had left the military, stepped into corporate roles, and their situations were very, their challenges were different than those who had risen through corporate only. And so when I stepped into executive coaching only, which was this wonderful universe that opened up for me, I didn't go, I'm going to be an executive coach. It was, I want to be a leadership coach. I want to work with people who lead people. And by default, I end up with a lot of amazing executives who really are high achievers. They are really wanting to be their best selves. And so we talk about how do you attract, retain, and have people brag about your leadership. And it's been a brilliant journey to get to see both sides of the types of industries that develop leaders come together. Well, I can definitely relate being former army officer myself. I, in fact, uh, just the other day, I, I engaged with a new client and we were talking a little bit about that. And I actually asked the question, why were you interested in having me as your coach? And he said, well, it's the military background. I'm curious about that. He said, I have no exposure to that but I just intuitively believe there's value there that I can learn from. So I thought I I could benefit. And his, his basic question was, what do you think's different? And I had never been asked that question quite so specifically. And my answer to him was, I think 
what I do see as different is in the military mindset, you are fundamentally honed in on whatever mission is in front of you. The next mission, that's your assignment, that's your target, that's your goal. And it's, it's, a, it's a laser kind of focusing about your thinking, your deployment of resources, your planning, your training, all of those things so you can go accomplish that mission. And I said, interestingly, I don't see that as widespread uh, application in the standard civilian organization. You think whatever brand they represent, whatever product they've got, you think that focus on mission would be understood, but the reality is it's not. People are rising up through the ranks and never being challenged with that idea of what do you understand about the mission, the next objective, you know, this year's plan, this year's goal, whatever. And it's that absence of that kind of focus, I think, that is one of the big differentiators. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, when you go into the military, you're even called to the military because of their inspired shared vision of protect and serve. And so people are called to that. Teachers are called to teach your future generations, which is why they may stay so long in an underpaid profession. So when people go into corporate, leaders assume that people who come to work there understand their quote unquote mission. And there's an aspect of leadership called inspiring a shared vision that a lot of leaders lack and that makes them less effective. They could be amazing at getting engineers to engineer. They could be amazing at let, letting their team feel heard. but the moment they assume everybody's on the same page with a shared vision, they stop talking about it. And that's when they start to lose people. So the moment you have attrition issues, one of those factors is they don't know why they're there. They don't know why they matter or their boss makes them feel they do, don't matter. And so you get to understand what is it? This is why exit interviews become very good data collection points but so often people aren't really honest in the exit interview because they, they've already checked out. And so this is where you really have to look at your leadership as well as all those that you're developing to replace you. And that's a leader's job, develop people to replace you so that you have space to move on to greater things. Um, and inspiring a shared vision is often lacking in a corporate setting that is never lacking in a military setting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about here. And it is always interesting to me when I engage with upper management folks and take on assignments like in the Fortune 500s, I often will ask them, what's your vision for your department, for your team, your group? And, and you know, sometimes these are large parts of the organization. It could be a whole region or a whole continent that they're responsible for. And, you know, the typical answer is, well, whatever the boss tells me, that's what we're going to do. And I'm going, no, no, you, you've <laughs> got to have your own slice of the pie. You need to take that big giant vision 
and distill it down specific to your part of the organization, your team, your group, and, you know, cast for them something they can get their teeth into. And what you just described is that mental stuckness in operational, and they haven't made the leap to strategic. So when someone says, we'd love to promote you, but you have to become more strategic, it means you have to step back, start delegating so you have space to learn the money. Money is like a river that flows through and touches every aspect of an organization on its way to the bank from the the client. And they have to know exactly where that river touches their organization and how they share the vision and give everybody purpose of their piece of how they touch that river. And if you don't know that, you will never be strategic enough to move up into an executive role and be able to help your organization grow effectively. Why do you think it is that people who have been on the corporate path, and and truthfully, I actually see it even in small business with founders who are able to create a certain degree of success, but eventually even that sort of caps out Why do you think it is people have that struggle moving into that ability to think strategically? Well, we as humans really don't like change. So the moment you have all this success under your belt being operational or even engineers, I mean, we've, it's hard to let go of touching what's made you successful up until this point, but you have to let go because what got you here will not get you there. I mean, that saying as cliched and overused as it might be, rings so true in the day-to-day understanding of how important it is to delegate and move on. And it's, it's scary. You have a lot riding on your success now. You've made it to a point where you may be very reliant on the type of salary you make, or you are reliant on the title you have. Your ego is a factor. It's like, okay, but to be better, You always want to know what you're doing well, and you always want to know where you're going to grow next. But if you're going to hang back with just what you know now and know do well and not grow, you stagnate. And that is the fastest way to your own demise than ever before. So it's pushing leaders to, okay, you do all this right. Here's where you grow next. Are you ready? And if they're not ready, they're not ready. That's okay. But when will you be ready? Because if you're never going to be ready, I'm going to ask you when you're going to retire. <laughs> I really, yeah. I'm just going to right to the bone. You know? Just get right to the end of it. You know, how's that worm farm looking? <laughs> uh, that's an old inside joke. A banker friend and I, back in the day, we used to lament when things got tough. We used to always dream about starting our worm farm out in the country by the lake and sell worms for a living. But there uh, you go. You can fish all day. Proving those worm, <laughs> those worms work, right? But, um, you know, part of the conundrum in in being able to move into that strategic role is the idea that I'm convinced that bigger businesses don't do well developing their leaders along the way. And I'm, I'm casting a very broad brush here, but what happens is we have this weird tradition of saying we need a supervisor for this team. And what do we do? We pick the best producer, the best individual contributor. We make them the supervisor. They may or may not survive that transition. If they do, then they are immediately put on this so-called management track. And 
if they were a good supervisor, maybe they can be a, a department head, maybe they can be a group leader, you know, VP, whatever. And there's typically about two or three levels of promotion there. And for the individual, they're thinking, well, I got promoted because I was a good producer. I'm going to stay focused on the production elements of what I do. Call it transaction, call it task, call it tactical, but it's that detail execution that got you success. And so now, you know, maybe you even added a zero to your bank account, you know, because of it. And you're like, okay, uh, I'll keep doing more of that. And then you hit that plateau when the company is asking for that strategic contribution, that strategic thinking. And that is very frequently on the ask list when I engage with corporate clients. They're saying, I feel the pressure to be more strategic, but and I'm told if I want to get promoted, I need to be become more strategic. And the the real question is, what the hell is that and how do I get there? <laughs> right. And and to I'm gonna back up to your first point. I wish that corporations would assess the, the team for who is ready and wants to take care of people. And it may not be your top producer because it's not their calling, but taking care of people is. It, and so when you look at just the numbers and you pick somebody based on production or they're a really great producer, you're, lo- you're measuring the wrong thing for leadership. And often people aren't asked, hey, you know, here's a promotion. However, here's what's going to change. We're going to ask you to stop producing and start taking care of people. And if we had that better conversation, half the people I've coached would say, I would have said no. I love doing what I want to do. So we call that a parallel track. Those who really are ready to take care of people and help produce more from people they are in that leadership track. Those who just want to be experts in their field and keep producing expertly, they have a different path of just being the expert that the leader and the team refer to. And so I, if, if you're big enough to have a parallel track, you will keep people and you will have ac- access to those experts that are really good and you will have great people taking care of people if you assess them for leadership, not just production. So to your point, A lot of times, 50% of the time, I think the wrong people are presented with a promotion opportunity. And of course, the dollar signs and the the title and the the progression, because we all want to grow, feels like, oh, my time is here. It's it's good. I'm going to do this. They don't realize how their job's going to change. Right. They really, really don't. I've told the story before. I had an engagement a number of years ago. I was asked to come in with a very large global engineering and construction company, and they had a program designed to indoctrinate first-time supervisors. It was about a day and a half long seminar thing. So they and they had the program written. I just needed to facilitate it and present it. So I got the book and went through it and and went and appeared. And day one, we opened up the session, did our first hour, hour and a half of content and took a little break. And there's this line that formed at the podium. And keep in mind, there were about 60 people in the room, 60 new newly appointed first time supervisors. And they were all coming up the ranks with engineering backgrounds, civil, mechanical, structural, all that. And 
talked to the first guy and he said, if, if everything you said in this first hour is what my new job is, I don't want it. I want to go back to being an engineer. And I'm going, yep. oh, well, can you hold that? Can you step aside? Let me talk to the next person. Well, that's what the whole line was there for. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, they, all had, it's, they all had the same revelation and concern. It was like, holy crap, I don't want to do this. I, you know, it's, I, it's, we promote leaders with missing, with missing information of what their of what their job really is going to be what is expected of them from the person promoting them what are the new metrics and they forget to ask that too because they just we we live a life full of assumptions and so your first step in considering leadership is challenge all your assumptions go find a way to ask the right people what would success look like if I were to take that promotion? How does my job change? How does my day-to-day -day metrics change? What's going to really set me up for success? And when they hear that they have to stop doing maybe what they love doing, they need to be able to accept that leadership promotion with full information, fully informed, so that they understand their quality of, of work life that may equal the quantity of work life. So right. we have a tendency to ask questions on the quantity and not and forget to ask about the quality. Right. Well, and coming from that, <clears throat> excuse me, that comfort zone of tactical execution, there there is an attribute of leadership. There's there's a whole model that I sometimes talk to clients about. It's the idea of how agile are you? And what I mean by that, it's not agile as in the new project management style, mm -hmm. but agility like an athlete is agile. And the idea is this, if we all know we tend to lapse into our comfort zone of execution, and it might be good because that's what you got recognized for, right? So it's not a question of whether that comfort zone is good or not, it is good. But the challenge as a leader is to be able, like a rubber band, to extend yourself, go out to the edge of uncertainty, fact find, gather data, get information, maybe even make a few decisions, knowing that you're going to be able to spring back and come back to that sort of center of comfort for a while to recharge and regroup. But the demands of the world around you are going to want, constantly want you. They're going to call you out to that edge of uncertainty. So the real magic in that is how agile are you? Is your rubber band short and brittle? And is it going to snap if you go out to the edge too often? Or are you truly going to be able to kind of ping back and forth between that edge of uncertainty? And, and that's where the learning and new experience comes from, by the way but be able to spring out there, do your thing, and then come back and dip into that well of, of re-energizing and certainty that you know about. And I'll, I'll add an, a, a layer in there too, because you are spot on. And a lot of people hear that. And, and what you're saying can be subjective. Somebody's going to hear you use the rubber band equivalent, and they're going to think they have to go way out here, and you're thinking here. So Every term that is subjective, like how, how big of a rubber band do I have to be? How short of a, I, I bring it back and I said, you know, there's three aspects that you need to start to really focus on as you want to move up. One is embracing your own genius, knowing your capacity for stretching, 
knowing your capacity for contraction, comfort, you know, or, or learning and delegating help from your team in the areas you can't stretch far enough. So it, you don't have to be the person doing it all, learning it all, stretching all by yourself. This is where true leadership, enabling others to act. You share a vision. We have to learn this. I can only learn this. Who wants to learn this? Really pulls a team together. And that's part of leadership is not only understanding your own genius, who you are and who you're not, but understanding how to embrace the genius of everyone around you, including your network, so that you can connect those you lead with your network if you can't stretch that far. So to your point, they have to be fully aware of what is needed to be that leader who stretches, but also leads other people to stretch with them, especially in areas that they're not good at. And it's okay to only be good in one area and not good in another. Nobody's perfect. We're all unicorns. It's your job as a leader to embrace the genius of others so that you all can achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes for the organization. And it's, it's this kind of trifecta that they have to keep in mind. Um, I like that. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. What do you think are some of the challenges people face in in making this ongoing sort of perpetual learning journey about becoming a better, more effective leader at each turn and each opportunity in their career? Do you see a pattern of some of the common holdbacks or, or roadblocks that keep people... I do. And it's probably something that people don't take time to think about. Um, It's the conditioning that we all have as we come out of our education system into the workplace. We have been conditioned to memorize and regurgitate. So when we open our mouth, we're supposed to be knowledgeable. And somehow along the way, when you're handed that diploma or you're given that new job, the, the world doesn't say, oh, by the way, we want you to change everything you knew and start asking questions and be curious and have permission to go ask questions. Go ask, hey, what's the one thing I'm doing really well and where do you see me growing next? Our brains, and this is neuroscience research from Harvard, and, and I really appreciated this research. When I finished my master's in industrial organizational psychology, I was tasked with doing a lot of training and teaching um, mid-level managers how to give good feedback or, or, you know, all these different things that are, seem standard. And what I learned was teaching people how to give feedback failed 95% of the time. And the researchers like, well, now you have to teach people how to ask for what they want, when they want it, when they could need it. I'm like, oh, I have to teach people how to ask for feedback. Well, that's going to be very interesting, which it turned out to be brilliant. But part of that research was our brains are seeking Two things, 24 7, 365. What am I doing right? Where do I fit? Where can I grow next? What's the next challenge? So, when it comes to work, we all want to know 
hey, what's the one thing I did really well in that project with you? And where do you see me using that next? Where, you know, it's, what am I doing right? Where do I grow? And it's that simple. I mean, social media has mastered the way to keep you in that infinity loop. And it's this simple permission to go into any setting, evaluate it, and kind of go say, hey, from your perspective, what does success look like if I were to do this? What do you expect me to do really well right out of the gate? And what's the first thing you want me to learn? Just keeping it that simple and giving yourself permission to ask really good, quick, professional, concise questions. We don't do it. We assume, just like in school, we're supposed to know stuff. And so this imposter syndrome comes in, the high anxiety level is coming in. And the moment you have any unknown presented to you at work, high anxiety, and oh my God, they're gonna figure out I'm a fraud. No, you got hired for a reason. You have gifts. Go find out what it is that made them really think you'd be successful at this job and where they want you to grow next. So the biggest challenge that we have at every level in a work environment is people forget they have permission to go find out what they're doing well and where to grow next, period. I like that. And that runs very parallel with uh, a whole premise that I've got in the book I wrote about building trust at work. And it's a real simple idea. When we think about just meeting someone new and, and going through the process of determining whether or not I can trust you or trust them, it it's fundamentally boils down to a series of questions. I, I'm curious, what do you think about this? What do you like? What do you prefer? You start engaging in this waterfall of questions. And as long as enough of them get answered in a way that you perceive as compatico with, you know, what you're looking for in the world, you say all of a sudden, Hey, I like that person. And then you ask some more questions, deeper meaning. And then all of a sudden you say, yeah, I can trust them. And so using that premise, my point to leaders is you need to set up your team environment where it is good to ask questions be curious and be, you know, uh, hungry for those questions to be answered. And the more your people can get their questions answered favorably for how they're looking at things, all of a sudden they're going to trust you. They're going to trust the system. They're going to trust the environment. And guess what? If they don't, they don't need to be on your team. So (laughs) that's a good thing. (laughs) Right. Right. And to your, to your point, you know, no one's going to trust the message until they trust the messenger. So it's a fundamental part of modeling the way or part of that inspiring your shared vision, encouraging people to ask questions um, and always assuming noble intent. Nobody gets up any one day thinking, you know, today I'm just going to suck. I'm going to suck so bad. It's going to be brilliant and epic. No, we all get up to be successful knowing that everybody came to work to have a better day than yesterday, let them ask questions and assume that premise, assume noble intent. They're not trying to be stupid. They're not trying to ask you a dumb question. They're not trying to look weak in anybody's eyes. They're not trying to make you look weak in somebody's eyes. Encourage, and if you create that atmosphere, they'll start trusting the messenger when you give a message and vice versa. To your point, 
Trust is built, it's earned, not expected, it's not given. So it's, it's really important for leaders to understand that just because they have the title doesn't mean somebody's going to trust them. Right. That's right. And, you know, that, that whole concept even manifests itself in a lot of other ways in, in bigger businesses. I, I, one executive I was working with comes to mind. He was actually quite senior, but one of his laments was, people just put stuff on my calendar. It's terrible. You know, I'm spending all day going to these meetings that in the end don't have a purpose for me. You know, somebody else from my department could have gone. And I said, well, are you curious? He goes, what do you mean? I said, have you asked the question, why am I getting invited to this meeting? And he said, no, I guess I haven't. Well, what he discovered, he he went on a, a couple of weeks of exercising the thought. We got back together and he said, it's amazing. He said, you know, I started asserting myself a little bit with my role. And I, I started telling people, not only did they have to tell me why I was invited, but I deserve getting an agenda. Tell me what the topic area is. And he said, do you know, there were probably eight out of 10 meeting invites I got that I could delegate to my team. It would have been a development opportunity for my team member to go to the meeting and hear the thing and contribute and speak on behalf of our department. And I didn't need to do it. And he said, I've got all this bandwidth now. And now I'm back to the strategic. He said, now I'm able to really dive into the strategy of what we're doing. Exactly. And, and I think what's funny is that we assume again, that word so much is expected of us to be present because of our title. And we forget that our job, is to develop our replacement and be curious and understand how to enable others to act as part of our team. And so people have to create and delegate so they can have the time to be strategic so that they really are seen as someone who has more vision for the company than just being present in all the meetings. People want the department represented. They often don't care who's there as long as the information gets distilled and the production gets done. And I think we, again, forget that. That was it exactly in his case. He said the, the other revelation was most of the time he was being asked as a courtesy to him, you know, to, to come to the meeting and, and hear that the topic might impact his department in his area. But to your point, he said, all right, if I just need a, some ears to hear, I'll send one of my people to go do it. And, right. and we can then represent and, and get the information we need. So it, it is an interesting uh, way that we evolve our habits <clears throat> at the corporate level to do things that sound good on the surface. You know, right. it sounds right. Hey, I need to invite Steve to my meeting. He's the department head over there. And I, I want to be sure they're represented. Well, Steve doesn't have to be the guy. It could be one of Steve's people. <laughs> and to the, the, the person you delegate, they now are getting seen by other people uh, from the company. They have more responsibility. They get to connect with the boss, com communicate. You're, it's, it's such an easy lift for a leader to delegate those when they know why they're delegating and what success looks like for that person to come back and report. And it's, it's part of giving that person you're developing a window into your world, which is part of their development. I think often we forget 
that development is not just tasking somebody with more things to do. It's teaching, if you're going to go to this meeting, what do you delegate? I've delegated this to you. Now, what are you going to delegate? And it's a ripple effect. We don't want one person stuck in the middle feeling martyred. It's the ripple effect of delegating, creating space, and growing. And if we don't remember to tell them, hey, I need you to grow and be present at this meeting because I'm going to delegate this to you for this reason. This is another leadership opportunity about kind of part of that sharing a shared vision is why are they being tasked with this meeting? Don't just dump it on them because they'll get this feeling that you're just dumping it on them. But they, if they learn that it's a growth opportunity, very different conversation. Well, part of that growth too is, uh, is another idea. I always challenge leaders to stop solving problems and they all recoil and they go, well, what do you mean? That's what I get paid to do. Do you really? And my point is when you've got a team and some direct reports and they bring you a problem, that ought to be the red flag of opportunity or maybe green flag of opportunity to say, ah, this is a teaching moment. They are admitting that they're uncertain about what to do next. So now I can impart to them knowledge I may have about solving that problem. But if I just solve it and give them the answer and send them away, they haven't learned anything. It's the classic teach a man to fish idea. So I use a simple reminder for leaders to, uh, when somebody comes to you in that moment, stop and ask at a minimum of three questions. You know, so they present the problem. So instead of immediately giving feedback and results, you respond with questions. Okay, I hear your problem. Who else have you talked to about this? What other area have you considered? Is there another project we've done recently that's similar that we had a an opportunity to apply that learning there, you know, and, and there are some natural questions that can be asked, but in reality, it's part of your own logic tree going on in your brain of how do I solve this problem? Because the way we solve problems is that both deductive and inductive logic going on. And it's, it's a, it's a yes, no, if then tree, you know, is this true? Yes. Okay. Go here. Is it no go there? You know, and it all works out that way. And another success strategy is when they bring a problem, they also need to bring at least their ideas of a solution. Right. And, and what they feel would work better. And, and it's also a, a, an interesting window into strategy. What other department is going to be affected by this decision? Who should we bring in to understand if, if what the solution is going to have a negative impact or a positive impact? And we forget to, to work cross across silos or cross-functioning to other departments. And so it, it is the leader's job strategically to go, who does this affect? What solutions do you have? Have you thought about others? How does the whole organization work? And to your point, teaching them that their one decision may have far-reaching effects. So let's really be long-visioned of how this, this works. But the interesting challenge that I've heard leaders do is they, they get the problem when it's really late in the game. And I go, then you have a culture that people don't feel comfortable coming to you sooner. How do we change that culture? 
if they think they have to know it and all of a sudden, you know, the fan's about to be wrecked with goo and they come to you in the last minute, then you haven't really empowered them to come to you for the conversations, the learning conversations. What, what, why is that? What, what do you want to see happen differently? How do we correct that ship? And it's just one of the things that shows up in, in a high pressured, high stress department with a leader who reacts instead of creates. And so we kind of talk about, okay, if your whole department is waiting because of the reaction, we have to now go back and instill creation. How do you create better conversations sooner so that you have time to really make the best decision for the entire organization, not just the department? So this, this is one of those conversations that comes in with lots of feet, lots of legs, <laughs> lots of avenues that you get to explore, as, especially as a coach and consultant, to help them kind of like have those brilliant aha moments of the entire process that's either been given them or by default created without them you know, without intention. And now we have to go back and intentionally recreate something that's going to be brilliant for their team. Right. You know, related to that is, is another thing that I've, I've heard people talk about, and that is that they'll be given a task from a senior leader and they'll agonize and they'll go spend hours and it's usually inevitably the thing that makes you stay up late or work on weekends to get done because it's over and above your day job and then they'll you know maybe it's a slide deck maybe it's a report of some kind and then they'll labor like this and they'll turn it in and the boss will go yeah this isn't quite what i was thinking about i'm uh, sorry uh what we need to do is go this way and then all that extra, all that anxiety, extra effort is wasted. So I encourage people when they get tasked like that to spend a very short few minutes in their own thought, basically creating the outline back, back to school analogies. In my day, when we wrote papers, we were supposed to write outlines first and turn them in and get those graded before we actually wrote the paper. And that's what I'm talking about. Kind, kind of just some simple bullet points of your thinking and take that back to the boss and say, hey, I've done a little thinking about this. Here's the way I'm going to attack it. Are we on point? Am I on point with your vision of the task? And then the boss can look at it. And this is minutes, not hours of talk, you know, to get that feedback and let the boss say, oh, I understand how you got there. No, that's not what I meant. You know, this is where we need to go. Or they say, perfect, go with that, flesh it out, and we'll be done. And it, it it's an efficiency move to do that one simple little gut check before you spend all your time putting the final product together. Yeah, and, and to your point, I think people forget to look at the trigger of when to do that versus when not to. And, you know, in the world of coaching, we often say you've got a, a head brain, a heart brain and a gut brain. And I say, when your brain is thinking about something more than three times, you need more information. It's a trigger to go ask or present your thoughts. If your heart aches, it means you care about the relationship. It means you need to go talk to the person because you care about the relationship. If your gut, that, that clench, it means you need to be brave enough to do something that is that you feel very strongly that's right for the situation, even though it may 
make other people you know uncomfortable. So how do you want to present that? And a lot of times, all of this can be answered with go ask, go get more information, go touch base, just get outside of your own being because your body is telling you to act, to do something. So I hope that if there's nothing else people hear today <laughs> is when there is something that is spiking your anxiety, making you feel as if you know, you're not, don't have enough information for whatever reason, please go ask, hey, what do you like about this? Where do, what's the, the next thing you think we should really tackle? What am I doing right? Where to grow? Those are the really two areas. And they are great conversations because if it's what, what do you like already about what we're doing versus where do you really think this is going to go? You're going to always get more information that you didn't have before. Doesn't mean you ask everybody every day, all the time, like some annoying person you knew at school. No. Trust yourself. Follow the signs. Start having really short, succinct, professional conversations with those questions. And you'll get exactly what you need when you need them. That's great advice, Carol. And I think that is a, a good uh, benediction here to wrap this thing up. We are about on time. So thank you so much for sitting in and sharing all of this. Tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in knowing more. I love to connect on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Carol with an E, C-A-R-O-L-E and Stizza, S-T-I-Z-Z-A. So look for me on LinkedIn. I have a website, relevant-insight.com. I run, I wrote a book called The Ask Framework about, you know, kind of empowering you to ask and how to do it in case you really want a framework that you can use very concisely. Uh, that's on Amazon. And the audio is about to come out in September. So we're um, excited about that. And I also run a leadership challenge virtual course for leaders at any stage to understand the five practices that really exemplary leaders have put into practice that they've passed on through case studies. So all of that is on my website. And I just love meeting people all the time, especially to hear about their leadership journey. Well, thank you again, Carol, for sitting in. And as always, folks, we'll have the reference points and links for that information in the show notes here. So if you're on audio streaming, uh, go over to your uh, uh, pod list, playlist channel, and you'll, you'll see the notes. If you uh, want the video version of this, we're on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hop over there, and uh, you can get the links as well. And with that, we're going to sign off, say goodbye. If there is anything I can help you with, hop over to my website, DougThorpe.com, that's T-H-O-R-P-E, and uh, there, there's a lot of uh, links there for additional resources and opportunities to get together and connect and help you. I hope this has added to your leadership learning and your journey to be a more effective boss. Remember, people join companies, they quit bosses. Don't be one of those guys. Take care. We'll <laughs> see you the next time. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.